All right, Gabe, man, I appreciate your time. I've been following your work um, ever since since uh, I've watched Kiss the Ground. Uh, I became really obsessed with the regenerative movement and uh, what all that encompasses. So I appreciate your time. So can you introduce yourself? Let everyone know what you do. My name is Gabe Brown. Along with my family, we own and operate a 6,000-acre ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. Besides that, I am a partner in Understanding Ag, which is the largest regenerative consulting company in the world. We're currently consulting on over 33 million acres across North America and in the UK. I'm also an instructor in Soil Health Academy, which is our nonprofit educational arm. And then along with my partners, we founded a verification company called Regenified. So I got a few irons in the fire right now. Man, so w did your family always practice these industrial, or I'm not in, not industrial, but indigenous or regenerative principles when they were farming, or is this something that you learned on your own? Yeah. The, the, the ranch that we're on was founded by my in-laws in 1956, and they farm very conventionally, heavy tillage, use of fertilizers, uh, occasionally fungicides and pesticides, but not too often. And, and I learned to farm from my father-in-law because I was born and raised in town. And then my wife and I had the opportunity to purchase a part of the ranch from them in 1991. And not being from a farm, I was always curious and interested and I'd read about no-till. And so in 1994, we made the switch to 100% zero-till uh, we thought at that time to save time and moisture. But then what happened was we had a very good crop our first year of no-till. But then 1995, the day before we were going to start combining 1,200 acres of spring wheat, we lost 100% of our crop to hail. 1996, we lost 100% to hail again. 1997 was a drought year. Nobody combined anything. 1998, we lost 80% of our crop to hail. So those four years, obviously, pretty tough. Uh, banker wasn't going to loan me any more money. I had to figure out, okay, how am I going to make this land productive without all those expensive inputs? So it sent me on a path of learning, and that path is one that I was very fortunate. I met a lot of the right people at the right time, and I tell people I'm a lifelong learner, still learning today. But but it really, those four years were the best thing that could have happened to us because even though it was very difficult financially, it opened my eyes and made me think differently. And it led me down what's known today as the path of regenerative agriculture. For for folks that aren't aware, can you define what regenerative agriculture means? Sure. So the definition I like to use for regenerative agriculture is simply this. Farming and ranching in synchrony with nature to repair, rebuild, revitalize, and restore ecosystem function, beginning with all life in the soil, moving to all, all life above the soil. So it's all encompassing. Are, are, are these practices pretty, um, it, when I think about what you just said in your definition of regenerative agriculture, that's, that's very close to what I think about my ancestors doing a long time ago in the indigenous community. So is it pretty close to those same principles as well? 
You're exactly right. You know, indigenous communities, they were, they really were in tune to what was happening around them. They were, they were great observers and they adapted accordingly. And I think we've lost that in agriculture today. We've lost the power of observation. We've lost the ability to look at what's happening on our farm or ranch and then adapt accordingly. You know, today in agriculture, for instance, if you're in crop production, you see a weed, you just want to go kill that weed. But you don't ask yourself, why did that weed germinate and show up? What am I doing in my cropping system that allowed that? And we've got to get back to more of these uh, practices of understanding what nature is trying to tell us. So often in agriculture today, all we do is treat symptoms. We don't solve problems. Regenerative agriculture is about solving problems using nature's principles. Gabe, what is the feedback when you're talking to these, you know, first-time ranchers that that maybe be getting introduced to these these principles? Um, what is how do they receive this information? Or I mean, do they think you're kind of hocus yeah. pocus kind of? Yeah, and and you know, 10, 15 years ago that would have been the case, but the last five years, you can't pick up a farm magazine or turn on a farm show without someone using the words regenerative. So I tell people, you know, for a lot of years, we were trying to push that snowball uphill. Now it's finally starting to roll downhill. So very few farmers and ranchers have not heard about regenerative agriculture and more and more every day are picking it up. And uh, I guess the best testament to that is understanding ag. We've only been in business five years and in those short five years, we became the largest regenerative consulting company in the world. That's very impressive. How does the government play into this? I imagine it's it's very incentivizing for uh, traditional farms to uh, you know practice conventional farming methods. Is there an incentive for farms to transition to a indigenous or regenerative practice? Yeah, great question, Jonathan. And so uh, people often ask me, okay, if this works so well, why isn't everybody doing it? Well, a big part of that is peer pressure. But a large part of that is the federal farm program here in the United States. The federal farm program, by and large, is very antagonistic to regenerative agriculture. Realize that the vast majority of farmers and ranchers have to borrow operating capital every year in order to put a crop in, in order to pay rent and expenses. Well, they go to their lenders and the lender's going to tell them, okay, you need to take part in the current farm program so you get these subsidies. Well, by doing so, that restricts a farmer's ability to be able to adapt and adjust. I'm very proud of the fact that myself and my partners all of us are actively farming and ranching, and we do not accept any government subsidies of any kind because we want to show people that this is profitable in and of itself. You know, why should my city cousins, so to speak, have to pay and subsidize my business? We're not subsidizing Ma and Pa's restaurant down on Main Street. Why do we think as farmers we need to be subsidized? So, Yes, the federal farm program is antagonistic to what we're 
attempting to accomplish. I read somewhere in doing research that it doesn't even matter uh, if the you know traditional farm produces crops at all. It doesn't matter about the amount. They still get revenue from the federal government if they're uh, producing what USDA or, or what the ag uh, corporations want them to produce. Is, is that true? Well, they would have to sign the farm up in a program. So maybe they're not producing it themselves. Maybe they're renting the land out, but then they're still eligible for those payments. But you have to go into the uh, office there of the Farm Service Agency and sign up the Mm -hmm. county office. Okay. I'm curious what the difference is between regenerative and organic. Can you be organic and be regenerative, or can you be regenerative and not organic? Sure. Good question. So, um, yes, you can be both. You can be regenerative and organic, but it becomes much more difficult at a large scale because many organic producers use copious amounts of tillage, and tillage is highly destructive to a healthy functioning soil ecosystem. Now, in saying that, our ranch here in North Dakota, it'd be very easy for us to be certified organic if we so chose, but I just don't see a benefit of being so. We direct market all the products we grow and raise on our ranch. To our knowledge, we've never, ever lost a sale because we're not certified organic. Hmm. And the reason I don't certify organic is 97% of farmers and ranchers out there are not organic. If I all of a sudden certify myself organic, I'm going to lose their ear, so to speak, because they're not interested in going organic. Being organic used to mean, or maybe to the uh, average consumer, it used to mean not, or you would assume not spraying herbicides or any kind of chemicals on it. But that's not true either. Is You can still be considered organic and still have some type of chemical sprayed on your crops. Is that also factual? Oh, that that's factual, but it has to be certain quote unquote natural amendments. You know, it's usually derivatives of plant oils, things like that, that they're spraying on. You know, and it's important to realize you can be organic by default. You just don't apply any of those synthetics and you can be certified organic. That may or may not be a good thing. Our goal is how do we drive everyone down a path that we're using less of all those inputs, but we're doing it in a way that is still highly productive, increasing profitability, while enhancing ecosystem function. One question that that always gets brought up when talking with people is the scalability of of regenerative agriculture. And Mm -hmm. it's always said that this way of farming, um, you need twice as much land done. I think there was a study done at White Oak Pastures recently that said, yep, the carbon carbon sequestration that that occurs is great. but in order to truly scale and provide enough food for the economy, you need twice as much land. So is that the case or is this farming practice, can it be scaled and really make an impact to the, the, the entire world? Okay, let me answer that with this analogy. So I grow spring wheat. My neighbor grows spring wheat. Okay, we each combine off our crops at the same time. 
we both have the same amount of spring wheat to sell. Okay, my neighbor leaves his land idle land for the remainder of the year. I plant a cover crop. I'm sequestering more carbon. I graze grass finish beef on that cover crop late fall and during the winter. I graze grass finished lamb on there. We move our laying hens on there so we have eggs on there. The bees are collecting the ne nectar, making honey. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to produce way more calories of nutrient-dense food per acre than the conventional model ever will. Hmm. So that that is just a totally false argument right there. In, in my mind, we're going to feed the world much faster using regenerative practices than we will in the conventional model. What are some other benefits that people may not see in the soil uh, from regenerative yep. principles? Yep. So... Uh, one of the things I do now, I spend a great deal of time trying to build bridges between many facets of society. So your interest may be in carbon sequestration, fighting climate change, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, putting it in the soil. We're going to be able to cycle much more carbon into the soil using these regenerative practices. So that's a benefit. The other thing is we're going to be able to store much more water because we're going to, when you increase the carbon content in the soil, for every 1% increase in organic matter, you're going to hold about 20,000 more gallons of water per foot of the soil, uh, per foot of topsoil. So that makes us much more resilient to drought. Also, think of spring of the year. You, We always, every year, see these pictures of towns flooding, et cetera, because of excess moisture. Well, if we had carbon back in the soil cycle, we're going to hold that water on the landscape. That'll alleviate uh, flooding in these communities. Another big problem is water quality issues. Okay. By growing cover crops using regenerative practices, we're holding the nutrients on the farm. They're not ending up in the watershed to pollute drinking water. Uh, you know, we won't wouldn't have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, et cetera. You know, and a, another major, major benefit of regenerative agriculture is an increase in the phytonutrient compounds in the food we're producing. And it's those phytonutrient compounds that drive our health, our gut microbiome. And nobody's talking about that. We're involved in some research now that is quantifying this. And it's just amazing. It's not a little bit different. It's multiples increase in the array of phytonutrients and the amount of phytonutrients. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that. So there's all these benefits. We like to call it, let's find common ground for common good. Just because I'm farming and ranching to make a profit doesn't mean I can't help provide all these other ancillary benefits that society wants. Agreed. I've heard some people in in the world and the regenerative movement, or you know, soil experts, gut microbiome experts. They they say that the soil and our gut are basically symbiotic. It's one of the same. They're it's basically uh, they're the very similar environments in regards to um, our health and our longevity of life. Is is that what you're seeing in the science too? 
Well, there's no doubt about that. Dr. David Montgomery's new book, What Your Food Ate, was just released recently, and he talks in depth about this, about the importance of uh, where you source your food and the importance of how healthy that soil is, where that food was either grown or raised. That's cool. I just got done reading The Hidden Half of Nature by uh, Dr. Montgomery and his wife, and it is an amazing book. So you're you're in the trenches here and you're you're it sounds like you're 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 leading the effort what's the number one thing that's kind of standing in your way with make with uh, persuading or or convincing farmers and ranches to con- to switch to regenerative methods mhm yeah and and here in the united states it's it's uh the federal farm program the amount of dollars from these subsidies you know farmers just do not want to give up those subsidies because it, you know, it does give them reassurance. When you farm and ranch like my partners and I do regeneratively with no subsidies, uh, you you are taking a greater risk uh, per se because you don't have that safety net. But we would argue because of the resiliency we've been build up, we've been able to build up in our soils it's really not as big a risk as what people think. The other big challenge is a lack of education. You know, farmers cannot implement what they do not know. And there's, you know, land-grant universities are not not teaching regenerative tools. Just yesterday, I did a webinar for a college class. And I, I gave the webinar on regenerative ag and the first question from the students is why aren't we learning this in college, <laughs> you know, and, and I gave them, you know, I gave their teacher credit because she sought me out and I've been doing a webinar for her several years in a row. Now she understands the importance of regenerative agriculture, but most of the land grant universities turn a blind eye to it. Are there any uh, colleges that are, you know, starting to pick up these, learnings and methods and teaching this? Is there a college that stands out in your in your mind? Well, it's not so much a college as individual professors at their those colleges. You know, uh, Shannon Dickerson and they're at the uh, University of Missouri, Dr. Jason Roundtree, University of Michigan. Um, the, there's a number of individual professors who are doing what they can to help educate. But there's not, per se, a college as a whole. Now, Cindy Daly at Chico State University, California, is doing some good work trying to get more of her departments on board uh, with this regenerative movement. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer. When you just start scratching the surface and learning this material, it's, it seems like, why are we not all doing this as consumers? And is that is that why we haven't made the shift because consumers are – um, they're kind of the key holders because it almost seems like the government's not going to move away from this because they kind of yeah. control everything. So as a consumer, we have the power is what it is what I feel. Yeah, and it, it all comes down to consumer education. You know, COVID, and I don't mean to to you know I feel for anyone who lost loved ones due to COVID, but that did shed a light on some of the issues with the current production model. You know, the, the I contend that those who succumbed to COVID, a lot of them had compromised immune systems. And 
I contend we don't eat food anymore. We eat food like substances. I mean, just pick up the packaging label and, you know, look at the amount, number of ingredients. It's not really food anymore. We have to get back to that. And so consumers are going to drive this movement. You're absolutely right, Jonathan. And that all comes down to education. That's why my partners and I are working uh, on these research projects with Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, Dr. Fred Provenza, Dr. Scott Kronberg, uh, really quantifying these phytonutrient compounds in food and the differences between uh, food grown and raised in healthy soil as compared to that grown and raised in the conventional model. There's a lot of money being spent on lab-grown meat um, by you know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, they're pumping a lot of uh, articles out of and how it um, will protect the environment, help reverse climate change, and it's actually healthier for you. What do you think about that, and and how are y'all helping uh, show the other side of the message? Yeah, and it's it's absolute ignorance. They you know. I don't blame them. They just don't. They're just not educated enough to understand. Let me give you this example. Dr. Stefan Van Vliet used a mass spectrometer, can measure well over 2,000 different phytonutrient compounds. So he took some grass finished hamburger and compared that to the uh, uh, Impossible Burger. And Impossible Burger has always said, well, it's the same as beef. What he found is there's only 13% overlap in phytonutrient compounds. It ain't even close to being the same as beef, okay? And so uh, kind of uh, ironically, he he wrote a paper on it, and he, he titled the paper Impossible to Replicate Beef because, <laughs> you know, it was kind of a play on words there. But... Think of it this way, most of, and I'm not denying anyone who wants to use these plant-based proteins or that, that, that's fine, that's their choice. But a plant is a fixed in the soil, it's fixed right there. It can gather certain nutrients based on the health of that soil and have so many phytonutrients. But a grazing animal has access to dozens, if not hundreds of different plants every day its protein is going to have a much wider array of these phytonutrient compounds. Is so, there... And also grazing animals then, the act of grazing, that stimulates that plant to slough more root exudates, collect more carbon out of the atmosphere to regrow. And that is what's going to help mitigate climate change. So they don't understand this. They don't understand the synchrony between grazing animals and carbon in the atmosphere is there a more prominent animal that that helps this process um when we're talking about uh climate uh or carbon sequestration is, is it all ruminant animals or is bison the more powerful animal or, or can cattle do the same are they all held equally yeah well they all play a different role and you know Centuries ago, pre-European settlement here in North America, it was the bison that were the big migrating ruminants. You know, over on the Serengeti, it's the wildebeest that are the big migrating ruminants. We don't have that anymore. So because of that, we use cattle as the proxy to that. 
and we can get about the same effect, okay? But you can use sheep and goats and any of these grazing animals can be used. They all have a purpose. And it should not just be one. It should be several species because they graze different species of plants. How does America stack up with other countries? Are are other countries ahead of us with the regenerative movement or yeah. is America leading the way? Yeah. And, and I just got back from a trip over to England and Ireland and, and I've spent extensive time traveling and Australia, et cetera. And there are pockets in the United States, North America that are much further along than any of those other countries in saying that, um, there are pockets in every country that are making progress. So uh, realize that even in North America, we don't have enough people, farmers, ranchers, using these regenerative practices yet. It needs to be considerably more to really be able to mitigate climate change. Yeah, there's a lot of money tied up into it, and it seems like a very political issue Um and you're you're either on the on one side of the aisle or the other. So, um, yeah, it seems like politics makes it makes the conversation messy, especially here in America. It it does realize realize how Washington works, and I've been asked to lobby and speak down to Congress a number of times, and uh it's driven by dollars of being big business. Doesn't matter whether we're talking chemical, fertilizer, um, you know, equipment manufacturers, the grain growers associations themselves. There's so many dollars being pumped into Washington. We're kidding ourselves if we think we're going to make change uh, through Washington. It has to come from the consumer. Gabe, have you worked with a, you know, a small scale ranch and worked with them for, you know, whatever X amount of number of years and transitioned them away from conventional farming into a regenerative practice and see them reap the rewards that you see on your place? Can you talk a little bit about that if you have? Oh, we've done that over and over and over again on these 33 million acres. That's what we're working with, with all of them to do. I'll, I'll give you this example. So there's a farm family about 100 miles north of me here in North Dakota. And I use them as an example because they only do crop production, no livestock, mostly rented land. I first started l- working with them uh, three full crop seasons ago. We did proper soil testing, started focusing on the life in the soil, started planting cover crops following the cash crop. He's still planting cash crops on every field every year, but he's planting cover crops also. In three years' time, he's reduced his synthetic fertility from 40 to 60%, less than what he used. He's eliminated all pesticides, eliminated all fungicides, and the last two years are two of the most profitable years he's ever had. That's just in three years. And we see this play out over and over. I do want to say, Jonathan, though, it's directly related to how intentional that farmer or rancher is. Are they willing to do what's necessary to adopt the six principles 
that drive the four ecosystem processes. You can't, for instance, go in there and no-till a crop for two years and then, oh, I'm going to do a tillage pass. Well, you just set yourself right back, you know. Now you got to start over. So you got to be very intentional. We have had extremely good success rate. Our success rate at Understanding Ag is over 90% in converting people down this regenerative path because we're educating them as to why they need to do these things. And then they can see it. They can see the health in their soil. They can see the life coming back to their farmer ranch and they can see increased profitability. Hmm. Well, Gabe, we're at 30 minutes and I don't want to keep you uh, too much longer. Gabe, I appreciate your time and uh, I love everything that you're doing, man. Just, Just keep plowing through, man. Well, thank you. And Jonathan, thank you for what you're doing because it's this type of education that's so needed. You know, we get the consumers educated and they will drive change. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gabe. I appreciate it. You have a good weekend, man. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah.